0: Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, and today we've got a special guest. It's Brian Gilmore, who is responsible for IoT advocacy at Splunk. Hey, Brian, good good to talk to you today. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here. Hello, everybody. Glad to be on. Yeah, Brian and I actually have uh, known each other uh, for a couple of years, or at least uh, having met up at many many IoT conferences in the, uh, in the in the past. I was uh, an analyst covering the the company Splunk for a while, and uh, you were right in the thick of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. We I've been there uh, about four and a half years now, so. Uh, started very early on in terms of the IoT initiative at Splunk, and it's been it's been amazing to watch the team and the business grow. It's really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's and it's really been a I, I think a exciting opportunity to uh, really connect a lot of industries for the first time, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the conversation. But uh, yeah, the you know the first way, a question I'd like to to ask you really is is about what has shaped your view of IOT, industrial IOT, and uh, if you could just provide a bit of your background and, and what was the journey that
1: brought you to where you where you are today. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, um, I mean, my background, I think, is like a lot of uh, folks in the tech industry, and in that I was really fortunate to be exposed to technology very early on. Um, You know, my dad was an elementary school teacher, uh, and so he was always, like, bringing home computers in the early 80s, especially to sort of keep them safe and secure over the summers and things like that. Um, And my mom was actually a computer programmer. She got involved with computer science very early on. She worked for an organization called Key Data Corporation in the late 60s. Was one of the very first sort of computer time sharing companies, and so uh, I was always sort of like in the midst of computers and technology, which was really exciting. I actually, most of my life I thought I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, you know, I was, I was, you know, I'd, I had gold of glory on guitar, but very quickly discovered that my computer skills would probably pay the bills a little bit better. So. Um, I went to work for the Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, uh, working for one of their practices, really on the IT side of things, and uh, and helped them develop some database-driven applications that helped them manage their physician practice, um, and and built some pretty you know reasonable skills there in terms of data access and ingestion and and, and analytics, uh, and then sort of you know decided to do a complete pivot and go work uh, for public aquariums along with my hobbies and music, I was also a big uh, saltwater fish tank hobbyist, and so went to work for public aquariums a while, and and while I was at public aquariums, or in public aquariums I guess I should say, I got a lot of exposure to uh, industrial automation systems and and discovered that those were also great sources of data, and I could do my job a lot better and a lot faster uh, and a lot more easily. Uh, if I sort of brought in some of what I had done in the hospital and connected those systems up to, to really basic analytics tools. I mean, I was using Microsoft Excel at the time. Um, and then sort of pivoted again to go work for the mechanical contracting firm that built one of the the last aquarium I worked at. They asked me to come and, and build some of the the products that I had, had built, you know, sort of in a, in a prototype phase at the aquarium uh, for their commercial automation customers, their data center customers, and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, was really all about, uh, you know, connecting sensor data, connecting application data, infrastructure data, getting it in front of the right stakeholders and giving them pretty easy access. I mean, the funny part is I think that was a it was IoT, sort of what we talk about IoT as now. We just never called it that. Um, it was more about just improving operations or, or making the workforce more efficient. Wow, that's
0: that's a really unique uh, career trajectory coming from aquatic life and and music. So, <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, look at, to look at can, can real, really really connected industry. Well, you know, as you, so if, as you started working with mechanical systems, I mean, how would you uh, characterize? I guess some of the unique challenges that were involved with uh, being able to apply this the similar sorts of data analytics that people take for granted. With IT systems to these uh, to these complex and, and very, I would say, for a public aquarium, I would I I would assume that the systems were quite specialized as well.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the the operations of the systems were very specialized, but the componentry was was pretty off the shelf. I mean, we used really regular sort of uh, PLC and, and and other you know type automation equipment, um, you know, regular off-the-shelf sensors and things like that. We were really fortunate um, at the most automated aquarium I worked at to work with a, a automation and controls vendor who was really innovative and really interested in exploring new ideas with their customers. And so, um, you know, we spent a lot of time with them building the hooks and the connections to, to get the, the data from these systems instrumented in a way that we could bring you know value in the lab or value in the life support system uh, office or value in the in the husbandry office um, and and you know it was it was more about uh, systems integration and operational change I think really than it was technical um, you know it was it was in the end pretty easy to get the data from you know, the equipment into a database and then to export from that database into something that we could analyze, like Microsoft Excel at the time. I mean, everything we really built there was based on pivot tables and H lookups and V lookups for asset information and things like that. But it was really how we presented it to the end user and how we trained the end user on it, et cetera, that, that made it a success.
0: Yeah, that's uh, really an ongoing theme that we find is that this idea of pulling the data in, in itself from systems is is not necessarily that difficult it's the challenges to put it in context that really makes a lot of sense so yeah and so now you've been at you've been at Splunk now for for around four years and you know as you've uh, now that Splunk of course has a, a far Broader scope in terms of the uh, types of businesses and the types of industries um, that is you know, that you've addressed, and, and could you talk about some of the unique data analytics challenges that uh, that that you've seen faced in uh, as this as this IoT market has started to to evolve?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know the uh, the thing you hear people talk most about in terms of challenges I think is sort of that you know the volume velocity variety like those sort of big data um, challenges you know I'm not necessarily convinced that that's anything unique to the IOT I mean even in IT we have customers indexing and analyzing hundreds of of gigabytes or multiple terabytes or even a couple doing uh, a couple petabytes of data per day Um, and you know it's it's it's, it's, there's just multi-source multi-format all of that um, you know, the, it's a very similar, at least from an analytics perspective, challenge in the IoT. I think the the architectures are, of course, a pretty big concern um, in IoT. I mean, you hear a lot of of you know questions about you know what do we do at the edge, what do we do in the fog, what do we do in the cloud. Again, I'm not sure that's necessarily. Um, a new thing, um, but in the end, I think the biggest challenge that I've seen, at least in working with our customers um, and then sort of just interfacing with the the industrial IoT community, is 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 really about again that accessibility and usability challenge, right? So, if I think about like a common industrial analytics application, I mean, a, a services provider or a systems integrator, or even a software vendor who's providing a solution for something like that. Um, you know, has to build something that's going to be of value from both the boiler room to the boardroom, right? So, you know, you have guys, uh, who are trying to get insights and value from a system who do half their job with a wrench. Um, and then you have this other sphere of, 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 you know, stakeholders who, you know, are really looking at effects on the bottom line and things like that. Um, and I think to, you know, to be able to put into a up a system that, that can sort of handle that diversity of use cases, um, you know, something that can satisfy both the plant floor, the CISO's office, the CIO's office, the COO's office, is really the challenge. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen a lot of really good success. And, and, you know, of course, you also hear about, you know, in the news, some of the, the, I would say, less than successful projects. Uh, that have tried to accomplish some of those things. So it's, you know, I think again, it's, it's like anything. There's challenges in people, process, and technology. Um, and, and, and I'm still not, like I said, 100% convinced that these are all sort of specialized to IoT. Maybe there's some specific stuff in IoT with like sensors and volume and variety and veracity there. But, you know, I think generally, um, a lot of these. Issues have been worked through in other enterprise or IT-type analytics solutions.
0: But you hit on a really interesting point there, which is that there are different constituencies that have very different types of needs that need to be addressed with data analytics, like the the guys who are working in the boiler room or uh, – really on the ground with machinery versus the you know, senior management or, or financial management uh, types. And so how have you approached the, uh, I mean, let's talk about the, you know, talk about the, the, you know, this industry, this idea that we're, you know, we're first uh, starting t- to connect machines um, that had not, not had it, data really being collected and, uh, and analyzed before. Typically, where do you start, and how? You know, what's been your experience in terms of uh, organizationally? Who would be, you know, the champion of uh, really implementing an analytics solution for uh, for some industrial machinery?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think to go back to something you just said there. Like, I think you know one of the one of the things that's easy to to assume is is that the you know the data has not been collected and it's not already already being used and i think you know an approach that i've taken sort of throughout my career is is really you know whether it's just you know because i want ease and fast time to value and low low cost or if it's you know just because i always kind of look for the simplest path i guess but there's there's a ton of Existing infrastructure and applications that really are already gathering and collecting this data for all sorts of other use cases, like automation and control, or, you know, something in the manufacturing and execution space. Um, And, you know, I think uh, the process of connecting to and mining those systems for data that already exists, like the legacy systems, like the process historians, uh, the ICS and SCADA systems. Um, is, is really the place that we've found a lot of success. Now, of course, we have customers who do instrument data directly from all sorts of different industrial assets directly to Splunk. But a lot of times they're like, you know, look, we've already made this big investment over 20 or 25 years in, you know, these five vendors and across these 50 facilities or whatever, and we have data to sort of this layer uh, but what we really need to do then is expose that layer to other stakeholders and then do the enrichments and, like you said, put the, the data in context. And so you know, we had to go out and build an ecosystem to really do that. I think one of the best things we did very early on was to reach out to partners like Kepor Technologies, who's now been uh, acquired by PTC. They're a great partner of ours. And they really, because they already have the technology to, to communicate with all that legacy stuff, Um, they could provide a really easy pathway to get data from that legacy system to the Splunk environment. Um, And then that did sort of solve two things for us. Number one, it didn't require that we sort of duplicate any type of effort or investment that had been made in the past, but it also sort of put a layer of industrial expertise between our platform and the really hypercritical systems, right? I mean, you know, coming from the sort of, you know, West Coast, Silicon Valley, whatever you want to call it, uh, space, you know, there's still a lot of skepticism in the heavy industrial world about the software vendors and, you know, these guys are really picky in terms of, I mean, they've worked with some of these vendors for 30 years, they have very specific systems integrators that they want to work with and these are the only people that they really trust to dig into their gear, to get the data out, and to send it somewhere. And so it's about building those relationships with both those technology as well as those service providers uh, that really makes that possible. Now, after that, of course, there's tons of opportunity once you you sort of take advantage of that lower hanging fruit of the existing data to re-instrument or to add additional censoring and things like that. But yeah,
0: no, that's an interesting point that you brought up too. This this uh, characteristic of a maybe a uh, I wouldn't say it's lack of trust, but the industrial customers tend to be. Obviously, very careful about their technology choices because of the uh, the stakes that are involved with these production applications and uh, (laughs) that are that are built to be resilient. Um, But I actually wanted to to move a bit to uh, to to talk about how you know. Your, your experience working as a platform versus an application, and uh, you know, for listeners that may not be as familiar with, with Splunk, I mean Splunk is—I uh, mean—it it is a data uh, analysis platform rather than an application. And I used to have these conversations with uh, with Godfrey Sullivan, who was, uh, who was the CEO when the company came public for for several years, and. We would talk about this this idea of being able to turn solutions into applications, and of course, as, as a as a platform, you're spoiled for choice because you can kind of go down a lot of different directions. But uh, but of course, when you're creating a new market and you're trying to identify problems to to be solved, it, it's really helpful to have you know certain patterns or you know business cases that you address and yeah. that's i mean that's why application vendors will be highly focused in a, in a specific industry so I would love to get your perspective i mean you now you've been working with the platform and the IoT Part of Splunk has has been, you uh, know, it, it, it started as it really as a relatively small, but but still very much, you know, focused on solving problems on a uh, on a we'll say ad hoc basis. But you know, you're you're building solutions kind of from the ground up. Um, how, you know, how have you seen that evolve, and are there any any use cases uh, that that st- stand out to you um, where a Custom-built solution or an idea that somebody had was able to uh, to to really be replicated by, say, some of your other customers or you know or people internally.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, we started with a platform. I mean, I think the Spunk Enterprise platform is you know. It's (laughs) It's multi-purpose <laughs> for sure. Um, what's pretty interesting is, you know, I think one of the things we've had to do a lot is sort of differentiate ourselves against IoT platforms, right? Because, you know, we're not an IoT platform; we're a data analytics platform. And, and IoT platforms, like the commercial or the open-source ones that we all know so well, are just, you know, they're another data source for us, right? So, you know, we sort of, I guess, we were pulled into the IoT by our customers and by our partners in a way. Um, you know, I think we had very early success with actually a project I worked on before. Uh, I worked for Splunk at Eglin Air Force Base, pulling in data from the smart buildings and the sensors to help them uh, optimize their energy consumption and utilization of their of their facilities. Um, I think we had very early public success with New York Airbrake and their use of Splunk to analyze data from the locomotive and the braking control systems. And And what these were were these were people – uh, at these companies who had either been had some exposure to Splunk before, like uh, I know the guy from New York Airbrake had worked with Splunk at at, at another customer um, before he took the job at New York Airbrake, uh, or they ran into it at a trade show or somebody else in their organization just passed it on to them. And they just connected with it, right? They just understood that wait a second, this is what I've been trying to do for so long. It's just easy to connect the data up, and then once I'm connected, I can analyze that data and and explore it and and build, you know, dashboards on it, and everything's in real time, and it's just, it it feels really good. Um, You know, and it gets you off the ground to sort of that level one of maybe, like, searching and exploration and things like that really, really quickly. Um, You know, and then what we've discovered is whether it's, you know, New York Airbrake, or whether it's Shaw Flooring, or now we have DB Cargo, who's using us for locomotive uh, maintenance and, and other use cases in Germany. We have, you know, uh, we had Royal Flying Doctor Service doing airplanes. We had all these different customers who were all sort of customizing and building their own custom applications on top of Splunk. I mean, part of what we do in being a platform is, is that customers can build everything from dashboards all the way up to, like, full-fledged standalone applications really there where somebody goes to a web page and log in and they just have access to like asset analytics or or ICS and SCADA cybersecurity uh, solutions and and so we spent a lot of time with the customers over I would say the first two to three years that I worked there or worked here um really understanding like what were the customizations they were doing like what were they struggling with what did they feel like it was just much harder uh, than it needed to be, or it was slower than it needed to be, or it was more expensive from an hour's perspective than it needed to be. Um, And so we've started in the IoT space building, um, we just launched, you know, I think two weeks ago now, um, you know, this industrial asset intelligence uh, announcement where we're talking about limited availability release that we're coming out with here soon. And this is sort of like that next iteration of the Splunk platform where, it, it, you know, it sits on top of Splunk, it runs in Splunk, uh, but it sort of, it gets those types of users a little bit further towards that complete solution. But again, you know, you're still going to have all kinds of customization in the end, because one thing I've discovered is that, like, Every IoT customer, every industrial customer, you know, whether even when they're very similar in terms of manufacturing customers or transportation customers or whatever, they all have something very specific they need to do based on the specifics of their operations or their organization, et cetera. So you have to leave that little bit of flexibility in there and and remain a platform, um, you know, and help the customer either build turnkey solutions themselves or through systems integrators and service providers, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, at the industrial asset intelligence market is really uh, it addresses a business problem that's near and dear to the team here at Momenta. we work with a number of our uh, our, you know, our clients and and people in the ecosystem around these these problems and yeah I'd be interested to get a sense of from you what has led you to uh, dedicate a lot more focus around uh, asset intelligence and and also as you're in Begin to incorporate more and more predictive analytics and, and AI capabilities. I mean, to what extent uh, can are do these types of approaches, these solutions, uh, will, you know, to what extent will they always remain a solution that will need a uh, Pretty significant degree of customization versus, you know, a real app. You know, getting close to an application where you get, say, you know, eighty percent of the of the problem gets solved, and then the last twenty percent is, uh, you know, can be automated. I would love love to just get your perspective on
1: that. Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head with your 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 last comment there, and that you know, I think the eighty you know percent solution is is really that sweet spot, right where you know, an application has to pull in a set of capabilities uh, that's going to apply to a, a broad number of users, right? So, you know, with with asset intelligence, we've added in um, some usability features for people, you know, who may be interacting with Splunk from the plant floor rather than from the data center or the data science office. Um, you know, there's, there's requirements in terms of interface and, and user experience, and so we've added some some things in there to, to, to add, you know, I would say, expected features for some of these personas. Um, you know, and then when you're talking about things like machine learning, I mean, this is, you know, clearly something that's on our roadmap and something that everybody who's, who's looking to do analytics or is doing analytics in the industrial space is focused on. You know, I think we're, we're at this really interesting point right now where the power and the capability of machine learning, you know, I hesitate to call it AI, of, of machine learning is, is very well understood, um, but it's the application of it that gets really, really difficult, right? So for example, you know, you, you can say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use such and such a, a library to, to forecast or cluster or detect anomalies or whatever it might be. But then when you really get down to things like the feature preparation and extraction or, uh, you know, the enrichment strategy or even like which specific algorithm for, for forecasting to choose, you really have to have a lot of uh, domain expertise, not only in what it is you're trying to predict, but then also a lot of data science expertise as well. So we're sort of like in this, you know, early phase where, you know, the machine le- learning portion of it is still much more uh, services-heavy, um, either customer in terms of hours or service provider in terms of services, uh, than than a lot of the rest of it, right? That becomes is a little bit more uh, advanced in terms of self-serve and, and things like that. Yeah, um, I'd be
0: interested to get your take as well as this as this market has evolved. I mean, whether you've seen any any industries or I would say types of users uh, or specific use cases that you know that really stand out uh, as really. Be- being able to apply technology in, in creative ways and think a bit in—I I, I hate to use the term outside the box—but uh, I- industries at least that are that are thinking really ahead or outside of, uh, say, conventional wisdom and are you know and and are able to really affect meaningful transformation of the business.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a there's a there's a, a lot of <laughs> emerging technologies, of course, that everybody's paying a lot of attention to. I mean, I think you know, I think the the technology is, I would say, outpacing the application right now, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, you know, totally. You, yeah. When you talk to customers, like you, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you definitely run into the really big, sophisticated. Uh, organizations that go right after the machine learning and the, in the, in the artificial intelligence or the, you know, they want to apply augmented reality to improve safety or, you know, they're looking for ways to apply blockchain, you know, to to solve something in their supply chain or whatever it might be. You know, but then again, there's this whole, set of customers who are really just looking to do business better or cheaper or faster or more safely or more secure, right? And when you, you really talk to them, they're like, we would just love real-time visibility of the plant floor outside the plant floor, right? That's like a very simple use case that, that you know, you hear from a lot of customers. Or, you know, we're looking at high-level KPIs on a department level or on an organization level, and we'd love to take into account real-time information from the production environment, you know, or from the vehicle fleet to really be able to, to, to you know, if we're looking at a, a health score for the for the company and it, it's flipped from 75 to, to 55 over the past 24 hours, you know, how do I drill down through that and see what line of business is that coming from? Okay, well, it's coming from manufacturing or it's coming from logistics. And if you drill down to logistics, what is it? Okay, well, we have all these key performance indicators for, you know, vehicle maintenance or, you know, safety you know procedures and and things like that, and they want to be able to like drill down through all of these different KPIs to basically get to the root cause. Where you know at least from the executive office perspective, they at least know who they need to to contact to say, "Hey, like, what's going on, and are you aware that this is affecting the business?" Um, you know, and, and the, you know those types of use cases. There's they're vast right now. I mean, you talk to a lot of different customers, and 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 that's really where they're trying to head. Um, you know, from the, I would say the more stereotypical use cases when you take a look at things like predictive maintenance, I think clearly is a huge driver, right? But, you know, predictive maintenance to me is just a piece of, of un, you know, reduction of unplanned downtime as well, right? And there's a yeah. number of different um, sort of strategies to take. Uh, to, to to get to that no unplanned downtime predictive maintenance being one of them so we see a lot of customers using analytics to to build predictive maintenance strategies but also then to monitor the performance of those predictive maintenance strategies i think the 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 use case that i've found the most compelling and i think from the especially the industrial iot perspective is really right now the most urgent um is is the is the cybersecurity perspective right because you've got this really interesting double-edged sort of connectivity where it gives you access to, to a whole bunch of, of new information and new insights and, and all of that. But in a way, that connectivity also sort of uh, increases the risk to your business if it's not done well or if it's not monitored well. Um, and so you know I think people almost think of the security as sort of a side effect of of the operations or the or the other types of things that people are trying to improve the IOT the industrial IOT but I think it has to be viewed much more as a fundamental component of it you know you hear a lot of companies talking about secure by design in in IOT and industrial IOT now um, and I think all of that is a really good idea because you know if it's not secure it's it's I mean it is it is going to inject risk or increase risk rather than than reduce it.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing how important that is and you know many for many companies there might be a a, a trigger that will cause them to End up making it uh, making security just a priority. I, I know we I saw you at the Tritium Niagara conference earlier this week, and just chatting with them, it, it was really m- remarkable too that uh, their CTO Kevin Smith is is very focused on on cybersecurity. That that's uh, just because when you have these millions of assets that are connected, right? Every one of them ends up being a vector for. For vulnerability, and uh, you know clearly the ability to uh, to secure at least to anticipate any uh, you know, any of the vulnerabilities is is, is really critical. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think you don't. I mean, you you can't only look at them as a vector for vulnerability as well, but they're also a target, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. I think you know we we work quite a bit with uh, Booz and Hamilton, and sort of around the ICS and, and SCADA cybersecurity challenge, and um, you know, a lot of the research that they've done, I, I, I've enjoyed reading it, and and you know, they talk about as they've worked with customers, and and we've seen this as we work with customers as well, that you know, the assumption has always been that you know, the IoT is going to be you know, a an increase in surface, right, that is going to be leveraged by threats and and will increase you know, access or or or, or risk to the to the enterprise network, but you know, you see a lot of trying to penetrate the OT or the IOT network to actually affect the IOT devices, or even coming in the other way, you know, can you get on the enterprise network and somehow traverse to the OT or to the operations network uh, and, and, you know, do all kinds of incredibly damaging things over there in terms of, you know, I mean, just shutting equipment off or, you know, putting assets or even humans at risk. And it's all really scary to think about, you know, people doing that for, you know, just because they're malicious or because they're trying to you know sabotage things or they're trying to you know uh, you know do, ransomware is you know something where I look at that whole space and just I just find it amazing that you know there's not tons of ransomware attacks going on in the OT space and it's like when I think about that and I think about you know all of the things that need to be solved right away I think that's that's one of the biggest ones for sure the nice thing is too is is that um you know, the technology is all there and the best practices are there. I mean, it has to be customized and it has to be catered for sure. Um, but, you know, I think generally the IT security best practices would get the OT and the IoT security much further along, I think, than people expect.
0: Now that's uh, It's reassuring to, to hear that. I think most People are still struggling with uh, uh, just the just the amazing amazing amount of confusion that uh, that faces them when they're dealing with the with the IT security landscape. But the reality is, and I, uh, one of our earlier podcast with David Bauer who used to be CISO at uh uh at Merrill Lynch and and he was at Morgan Stanley before that. It's it's really that that there are there are some best practices that are out there and if you just follow some basic hygiene and apply a bit of uh you know preventive care you can you can really avoid a lot of a lot of heartache down the road. There's there's no doubt yeah. about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean all the new I mean the news which is funny because it's actually kind of old news I think it's from you know this past summer but of course there's the the whole you know the the news about the fish tank being used to to exfiltrate data from the um you know the casino and the high roller database and things like that and when you really i mean when you think about that like people really focus like first of all everybody calls it a, t- a temperature sensor and and there was a temperature sensor involved but my guess is is that the sensor itself was not a piece of this it was probably you know the unsecured linux or windows box that that thing was attached to right and and you know i think generally when you have Devices that have operating systems that are exploitable on your network and you're not aware of them, they're a risk generally, whether or not it's an IT device or an IoT device or, you know, I can bring my Echo and, and, and pop it on my desk and connect it up to the network and, you know, that's, that's, Something I can do. I can also bring in a, you know, a little embedded PC and do the same thing. So I think the the practices of understanding what's on the network, what it is, if it's protected, who owns it, is it trusted, all of these different types of things, that that goes across IT, IoT, OT, uh, etc. And again, it's just not something that's specific to IoT in my mind.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's a that's a great point. So I wanted to just ask a, a yeah. one. Question a bit of, about the uh, the serendipity that comes from doing data and analytics and, and exploration. Uh, I mean, we we've talked about this uh, need to address real pain points, uh, unplanned downtime. But I think some of the interesting case studies that that have that I've heard about people, you know, using platforms, uh, you know, such as yours or other data data mining platforms is is what they find out in a really in a, on, on a, you know, second order benefits, as it were. And I think you might have told me about uh, somebody uh, that was analyzing elevator data in uh, a, a landlord and discovering some interesting things. Do you have any thoughts about what you can find with uh, just using a, a, a tool to explore data once you've got it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think the the elevator story you're talking about is, you know, I think one of our customers very early on, it actually predates me, so it might have been Godfrey who told you about that. Um, You know, they were using Splunk to analyze the operations of the elevators and the buildings that they managed for their customers. Uh, And what they discovered was, you know, it's sort of a side effect of this. They had all this information, not only on the performance of the elevators, but also where the elevators were stopping. And by being able to like sort of trend line that information over time they could see that like for a particular floor the number of stops per day decreased from 600 you know in in 1 month to 300 6 months later and then 153 months later and and they could cr- sort of go back to their customers and and understand um, you know what was the cause of that? Had they downsized, right? Did they need less floor space? Uh, you know, was their business in trouble? Did they want to move to a, to another facility? And that, you know, those types of of like you said, serendipitous use cases for me is really what it's all about. You know, is like by having new access and to be able to put people who who think about the processes and the operations of these businesses or of these. Assets or these mechanical systems or whatever they are, by giving them sort of a playground to go in and really search and explore and analyze, it's like, it's a combination of intuition support. I mean, I remember the first time I really had unfettered data access from, from one of my systems was like, I could literally go in and say, you know what, it feels to me like whenever this happens, this always happens. And suddenly, I had this method to go like, "Whoa! How could I be so wrong?" Or, "Oh my God, I'm right! I wonder what's causing that." And then you pivot and you find the cause, and then you can actually say, "Well, okay, if I can monitor for that cause, and I can alert when that thing happens, I can prevent this other much worse thing from happening." And that's really what people do when they're when they're using these systems, right? Is they're they're exploring, they're understanding, they're learning. Um, I think another really interesting. And totally unexpected uh, secondary benefit from systems like this for me has been um, the sort of pathway in the new communication in the organization. Um, I one of my old bosses before I worked for Splunk, you know, we used Splunk uh, at the company that I worked at before. Um, you know, he he was he called it a campfire technology, because of of how he had seen it work at at at, at the Air Force Base, which I talked about earlier. And when I asked him what he meant by that, he says, there's certain technologies uh, where people are drawn to them, number one, and then when they arrive, they sit down and they stop and they talk and they communicate. And it it was just shocking to me because he was totally right, because even, you know, at the Air Force, you saw people who were, you know, literally cleaning and and replacing air filters, having conversations with the energy managers and with the base, you know, commanders and all the brass and all of that um, about stuff they were all seeing now across all of their their facilities. And it wasn't just, oh, we're consuming more power. It's, hey, should we think about moving these conferences to this other building because it's just much more energy efficient than the building that we've been doing these big conferences in? Or, hey, if we need to build another building, let's see if the data can tell us which buildings are efficient and if we can understand something about them from a perspective of when they were built, how they were built, how they're roofed, how many square feet they are, you know, how many hours per day they're occupied, all of these different types of things. And when you have a system that gives you that kind of access to data and it lets you be creative and and curious, you're going to solve use cases far beyond what you decided to begin with and probably what you, you, you used to sort of... You know, validate the investment in the platform to begin with, and and it's those things that I feel like make a platform super sticky and and super long lived, and 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 really make it, you know, the place that that people go to to get understanding. And so, that's the IoT, good. yeah, go ahead. No,
0: I was just going to say it's it's. I mean, you really highlighted the. The value of domain knowledge and context, uh, when you combine it with the analytics and the data itself, I mean, you really need to have people who are uh, deeply embedded in the processes and the businesses and the and the functions uh, of you know, their daily lives and their organizations to really be able to tease out those those nuggets of insight that are that are buried
1: in the data. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, being a data-driven organization. Gets you so far being an organization who hires and, and allows people to become data driven is really, you know, that's, that's the holy grail, I think, you know, and that, that works, you know, no matter what the data source is, whether it's IT, IoT, IoT, etc.,
0: yeah, so I'd like to just turn the conversation forward and get your views on where you think the market is is headed as you've as you've seen the evolution of I what we now call industrial IoT over the past several years. Um, you know, what do you think are some of the key? Uh, developments ahead of us and forces that'll, that'll shape how we see you know, adoption of advanced technologies and, and potential transformation playing out over the yeah. next several years?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, honestly, I think right now it feels to me like sort of IoT-driven outcomes and the use of the word IoT are kind of inversely proportional right? So, I, I mean, I expect we'll see a decline of, of the term IoT and more adoption of what we describe today as IoT. I mean, it's 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 going to be, you know, I believe that in order for it to become ubiquitous and, and, and commonplace, it's going to have to become transparent, right? I mean, we don't, we really talk about TCP IP anymore, right? But we use it all day, every day kind of thing. So, I think that's one thing. Um, you know, I think there's going to be Oh, there has to be a lot of consolidation in, in the IoT platform space as well. I think that, you know, A, it's, it causes quite a bit of confusion, right, in terms of you've got, just, you've got so many vendors and their products are all so great but also similar. Um, and then, you, of course, you have a lot of the legacy vendors who are saying, hey, like what you already have is basically an IoT platform as well and you could use it there. So my guess is there's going to be a lot of consolidation in that space. I mean, I think, you know, I would imagine eventually you're going to get down to, you know, five to ten sort of leading vendors, in the IoT platforms and, and then five to ten leading vendors in the ICS and SCADA space and then you know you're going to have I would say a significant number of of open source or new open source solutions that sort of overlap with both the you know the open source or the commercial IoT platforms and then the the commercial legacy software um, you know, just because it's one place that open source really hasn't penetrated yet. Um, but I think, you know, as, as people become more and more comfortable with open source, just like as they become more and more comfortable with cloud, you're going to see a lot more influence of those two um, technologies or those two paradigms or whatever you want to call them on the IoT and on the OT space.
0: Well, that's that's, um, that's great. Uh, uh, normally, I like to... Wrap up my uh, conversations with um, with a request for resources or recommendations, and uh, yeah, I have to say it's been super informative and and um, illuminating uh, talking to you about your your experiences and, and perspective. Um, but I'd love to get a a, a couple of rec- a recommendation or two if you have, if there's any books or other resources that you like to share uh, with, um, either with friends or, or, or professional colleagues.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I, it, I've just recently started it, but I think one of the most, I would say thought provoking books I've read in a long time is, is, is a sort of hybrid nonfiction fiction book. Um, it's called, uh, life 3.0. It's like, um, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. It's uh, by an author Max Tegmark. It's, it. it I, have you read it? I uh, mean, I, I'm
0: <laughs> familiar with him. I, I haven't read the book, but I, he's absolutely uh, <laughs> yeah, quite illuminating yeah. in the in uh, you know in in his, in his field.
1: Yeah. So you know, I think you know he's he's drawing a lot from you know the sort of Elon type perspective as well as is some of the other futurists in terms of AI. Um, and it's, it's just really really fascinating to, to get that vision of, of where AI could go in, in both the short and the long term and then the impact that it could have on being human I mean you know I you know thinking outside of even the IOT space I mean I think you know if you had told us 15 or 20 years ago the major impact that even social media would have on our world we would I would have said you're absolutely nuts right it's just it's never going to have those types of impacts and across so many facets of our lives. Uh, and, and you know, based on my early read of this book, I think AI will be many, many, many times more in, impactful. Um, and the, the book covers a lot, too, which is, is stuff that's really of interest to me. I mean, one of the things that I've been really fascinated, and I get to do some work with, um, you know, a, an autonomous vehicle, uh, organization not too long ago, and 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 a lot of these technologies, I think, are starting to force the requirement for for a real deep, uh, I would say, uh, imagining of, of of what the moral implications are of some of these te- technologies as well, right? So, you know, I think that um, he does a really good job in that in in, in Life3.0, sort of covering, you know, the the convergence of technology and, and morality and spirituality and all sorts of things, which is. You know, it's it's areas when you when you hear so much about just the bits and the bytes of, of the technology to to really understand the the broader implications is pretty fun for me. So, well, and that's a Gary. As- <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's a terrific a terrific recommendation, and I think a lot of times when we're deeply immersed in. And ensconced in understanding and implementing technologies, we don't always think about the downstream implications and the human implications. And that uh, sounds like a fascinating book. So I'm definitely uh, it, I'm putting it on my list for, uh, for up next. So, um, well, this again, Brian, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to share your share your insights with us. Uh, this, again, we've been listening to. Brian Gilmore, uh, who is a, an IoT evangelist, uh, the IoT evangelist at Splunk. Uh, and this is Ed McGuire, uh, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners. And thank you all for joining us for another Edge podcast. And, and we hope you've enjoyed your, uh, your experience. And please send us any comments, questions, and, and follow-up. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.